Thank you for listening to the Define Nobody's podcast with Eric Arjuna and special guests. If you enjoy this episode, please like and subscribe so you never miss a show. If you're on Instagram, please follow us at Divine Nobody's Podcast and join our ever-growing community of lightworkers and spiritual visionaries. Together, we can raise the frequency of our planet and bring in a new era of awakening and understanding. Welcome to our tribe. And now your host, Eric Ajna. Welcome back, friends. It's uh, great to have you in the space again. And uh, right in the midst of Venus retrograde, which began on July 22nd and goes direct on September 3rd. And uh, I'd like to say that it's a fairly rare event, but it actually occurs every 18 months or so. So there seems to be a a lot of mixed feelings about the motivation behind Venus retrograde. And um, I suppose it depends on the perspective we bring into the space. You know, much like the perspective we bring into Mercury retrograde, which um, happens a, a bit more frequently. And uh, as a Libra, you know, my uh, ruling planet is Venus, and my my moon is in Gemini, which you know holds Mercury as its ruling planet. So, typically, when either Venus or Mercury enter retrograde, you know, I I, I find myself in much more of a reflected period, and opposed to you know the often challenging aspects of it that others tend to go through during this time. In other words, um, with Venus as my ruling planet, you know, much of my journey in life revolves around understanding the dynamics of love in both the interpersonal and uh, romantic relationship realm. So it never really stops for me. And uh, because Mercury is the planet of communication, you know, when it goes retrograde, I find myself going more inwards and um, limiting my communication with others as a way to you know, focus that energy on the communication I engage in with myself. So with the advent of uh, Venus retrograde, you know, many people uh, find themselves venturing backwards through time and uh, revisiting the uh, emotional dynamics of past relationships. Of course, this isn't always a negative thing, but uh, it can be exhausting if your only goal is to, you know, revisit old wounds without any motivation to understand or, you know, heal from situations that we've experienced. And while I can't speak for uh, others and kind of determining how this process plays out, what I can do is uh, speak to how this uh, Venus retrograde is affecting me, uh, especially when I retroactively look back and, and sit with my past. You know, uh, when I think of all the most important times in my life, I'd like to think that I remember them clearly. Though, um, yeah, I often wonder if my recollection of these events uh, is at all the same as the actual event itself. I mean, for the most part, you know, as humans, you know, we have difficulty even remembering the simple things. You know, somehow we can have little recollection of what we did the day before, or even someone's name, despite having them, you know, tell you more than a handful of times. You know, like we can forget the address to a friend's house, you know, despite having gone there many times in the past. And even if we reach really far back into the past, you know, we often, we often have little recollection of events that you know, would seem monumental to remember in our lives. You know, like walking for the first time or riding a bike or, you know, learning how to swim. And, you know, perhaps we can forgive some things considering that a a child doesn't really begin the process of individuation until it reaches the ages of uh, two or three. Though, you know, many of these seemingly trivial things tend to occur after this point. You know, perhaps it isn't until we've, you know, developed a sense of self sufficient enough to, 
you know, separate our experiences from that of the experiences of our parents that, you know, we can begin to understand. I mean, after all, you know, it, it seems that everything we experience prior to this point is simply just a reaction in response to uh, environmental factors kind of governed by our parents, right? And I think in this way, you know, perhaps we don't recall memories of infancy, but, you know, we remember the, the visceral feelings of heightened emotions like fear. You know, even if we don't clearly understand the, the circumstances around why we feel it, I mean, just from my own, you know, personal experience with children, you know, it, it, it seems they have a, a whole lot to be afraid of considering their, you know, very existence is dependent on how well their parents can, can care for them and uh, nurture their needs. I mean, imagine a child suddenly encountering the beautiful chaos of what the Buddhists consider the most traumatic event in someone's life, uh, which is being born. And then, you know, having to find your own sense of grounding within such unknown, uncharted territories of both, you know, the physical reality of the outside world, um, but also the, the unregulated data sphere of the underdeveloped mind at the same time. I mean, it seems then that, um, seems then that they're, they're kind of immediately faced with the dilemma of, of how to get a hold of what Paul McLean considers the triune brain which is, you know, the brainstem, the limbic system, and uh, the cortex. And doing this while at the same time, you know, trying to, to govern our emotions and feelings while these sort of biological systems are, are uh, still developing. You know, when we think of um, evolution, you know, it, it seems that children tend to embody more of a, a type of mammalian perspective of reality, which kind of tends to lean more into primitive responses, you know, to like, what it perceives to be threatening situations. In other words, you know, perhaps we are more like animals than we are like fully individuated human beings. And of course, that isn't to say that, you know, children would fall into a, a natural proclivity towards chaos or, you know, kill other animals indiscriminately as a way to survive. While even grown adults, you know, have the capacity for violence when under extreme levels of, of stress, you know, it's, it's important to not use our um, our fearful responses as a way to define the nature of who we are because we're much more complex than just our feelings of fear and you know that's that's fairly obvious in our ability to feel right our ability to think and uh, rationalize our our own behavior as sentient beings i mean ultimately the center of feeling is what paves the foundation for morality and uh, love to unravel in our lives and I mean sentient that, you know, eventually as, as time goes on, you know, we develop a sense that we exist as a type of centralized vantage point in consciousness apart from everything else. And of course, this perspective in and of itself speaks to um, an underdeveloped and naive way of looking at the world because, you know, from the spiritual perspective, there's, there's no separation between that and other. But, you know, this frame of thinking should provide a, you know, a, a clear contrast between, you know, how we behave under the pretense that we're animals versus, you know, how we behave when we're operating from the spiritual domain. You know, it seems that um, children have more of a tendency to, you know, gravitate towards biological impulses until the body kind of fully develops an understanding of the world. And then when this understanding happens, you know, perhaps it's then that, you know, the spirit begins waking up and uh, over time begins this sort of process of trying to, you know, establish harmony with its external environment. Though, you know, this uh, process doesn't, doesn't happen all at once, and it certainly doesn't have to be linear. You know, many children that face 
you know, unprecedented levels of trauma tend to kind of take alternate routes that stretch out this process of learning to such an extent that they never fully develop like well into their young adult years, if at all, right? You know, the, the role that trauma plays in our ability to kind of remember things has always been a fascinating subject to me. And primarily because of how I approached using memory as a way to kind of self-soothe as a child. Of course, this understanding wasn't as prevalent until I became an adult. You know, to some degree, I had always reveled in my mind's ability to alter the way in which I experienced something. You know, as a Libra, you know, I, I'd always romanticized the idea of love in a way that seemed more utopian. And of course, you know, it's easy to do this, especially when you, you know, you find yourself immersed in New Age spirituality. Because, you know, everything you subject yourself to in this realm seems to support the idea of uh, a new earth filled with, you know, enlightened communities and shared moral values and, you know, frolicking through the, the psychedelic meadows with your twin flame by your side, that sort of thing. I mean, Barbara Messiniak's Bringers of the Dawn tends to paint this idea of a new earth in a way that kind of seems wildly fantastical and, and, and something akin to what the, the theosophists consider Summerland or, you know, the place that we go after we die. And uh, while it's um, obvious, pretty obvious, that none of us will gain entry to this place while we're alive, you know, we are able to get a glimpse into what this world may be like through, you know, our, our continued use of plant medicine. I mean, we have several ways in which we continue to nurture this idea of a life much different than the life we are currently in. And while it appears mostly innocent to dream, you know, we have to pay, you know, very close attention as to where the impulse to dream comes from. Because even though we long for that, you know, proverbial return home to a world more, you know, spiritually pristine and void of contradiction, you know, we, we still very much have to keep ourselves grounded in the reality that, you know, this life isn't designed that way. I mean, in my case, you know, I, I spent most of my life dreaming of the perfect love. Of course, this isn't unlike what most people dream of and hope for. Though, you know, while others have ambitions of financial success or fame, you know, I'd always marveled at the, the beautiful possibility of spending my life with a partner that, you know, maybe shared the same beautiful vision of a utopian love story. I mean, regardless of how unrealistic our visions for a perfect love are, you know, it's, it's certainly a worthy pursuit regardless of whether we find out. Because, you know, we learn so much about ourselves in the process of seeking this out, right? I mean, perhaps eventually we realize that we are going about this process in the wrong way. And more importantly, you know, um, we really begin to focus on why it's so imperative for us to find this love at all costs. As I said, you know, it, it seems innocent, and it is. But it took me uh, many years to discover the real motivation behind why I romanticize the idea of a perfect partner and why I also romanticize partners that weren't always the best partners for me. And after several you know, failed relationships in the past, you know, the, the pain of each breakup seemed to have kind of pointed me in the direction of childhood trauma and um, you know, how it affects the ways in which we handle emotional stress. And uh, one thing that we, you know, quickly learn about the reality of life is that, you know, imagination is always more beautiful than reality. Of course, there are many things about life that are very beautiful, though, you know, even if we see, you know, beautiful landscapes, you know, they, they, never, they never quite measure up to the, the magical and, and sort of mystical realms that exist in our own minds. 
And of course, you know, this isn't always the case. You know, there are plenty of people that kind of go in the opposite direction when it comes to painting their own version of reality. You know, and at times those realities can be, you know, nightmarish realms of just profound sadness and desperation, or even, you know, something as subtle as just seeing the negative aspects of everything, right? And, you know, whatever, you know, direction our minds tend to flow, you know, one thing definitely seems certain, which is that most of us dream of a life just very different than the ones that we're currently in. Though what happens when we utilize this ability to romanticize as a way to kind of soften the blow of, you know, certain traumas we undergo in life? I mean, this certainly was uh, my case as a child, you know. As a child, you know, my parents divorced when I was 12 years old. And shortly after that, you know, my, my uh, father fell into a, a really grave depression that led him into just falling deeply into drugs like meth. And shortly before that sort of final departure of my, my family unit, you know, I, I, I witnessed several instances where my father physically abused my mother, you know, which of course is a, a haunting thing to experience as a child. You know, there's nothing more disarming than knowing that you have absolutely no power in a situation where power is needed and knowing full well that, that this man, you know, who you've idolized in your mind as being your protector, you know, you see embodying the, the complete opposite with someone that he should be protecting. I mean, it seems absolutely just futile in those moments to try and understand the betrayal and fear that you experience. And so in those moments, you know, there's absolutely no choice but to disassociate and disconnect you know, to just try and disconnect from that experience in a way that only you know how, especially as a child. You know, like in an instant, you know, we may find our you know, childhood selves just wandering through fantastical realms with our, you know, favorite Marvel superheroes or holding hands with uh, Winnie from the Wonder Years on your way home from school. You know, like the, the point is, you know, when we experience trauma as a child, we have little capacity to understand the complexities of why it's happening. And as a way to protect ourselves and self-soothe from the pain that we feel, you know, we, uh, we internalize our confusion and uh, escape the clutches of these moments by drifting into imagination. You know, like if our parents are fighting, you know, we may dream of uh, being a part of a healthier, more loving family. You know, if we grew up poor, you know, we may dream of what it may be like having all the riches in the world. And if we grew up, you know, experiencing deep states of loneliness where, we were abandoned as children, you know, like we, we may grow up romanticizing the perfect partner that can kind of save us from this loneliness and, and love us in the way that we've always wanted to be loved. And it is this impulse to dream that sort of paves the foundation for how we handle certain circumstances in life. I mean, particularly challenging situations, right? I mean, in a sense, you know, it, it becomes a coping mechanism for us, right? I mean, as innocent as it may be to kind of venture through our you know, young adult years with a, a keen sense of imagination, you know, it's, it's important to exercise awareness over our tendency to do this, I mean, especially when it comes to romantic relationships. Though, you know, we, we seem to have integrated this behavior into certain areas of our lives where it can actually sometimes be seen as an acceptable practice. I mean, it seems kind of to really help us envision the life that we want to live when we use it as a way to manifest our own success. I mean, you know, one can argue that this is at least partially governed by a trauma response, but you know we can't discredit our mind's ability to uh, envision a life of success. But only really as long as we aren't envisioning from a place of lack, right? Or you know, as a way to escape from what we would consider to be a terrible situation. 
I mean, after all, you know, manifestation can only really work if we're being, you know, fully aware of our worth as human beings. Or if we somehow, you know, utilize our trauma as lessons to learn from. So perhaps, you know, we can uh, make a worthy distinction here, which is, you know, if we utilize manifestation as a way to escape, then, you know, it's fairly clear that our fears are speaking. You know, if we're manifesting from a place of abundance, then, you know, love appears to be driving the ship. Because, you know, manifestation through the eyes of abundance kind of requires a great deal of trust in ourselves. But, you know, manifestation through lack, you know, it, it appears to make manifestation impossible. Because we don't have enough trust in ourselves to allow the universe to, to bring that abundance into our lives, right? You know, instead, you know, we, we uh, approach it as a means of survival, which, you know, by definition is, is closed off and, and scared and sheltered from, you know, that which can provide us the spaces to grow. So my point is this, you know, like we, we all use our imagination to various degrees. But when trauma enters our imagination, you know, its, it's motivation is to escape from the present moment. You know, not to be one with it, you know, not to grow with it, but to escape situations where we feel powerless. I mean, in terms of romantic relationships, it seems then that we typically use our ability to imagine uh, in a couple ways. One of those ways is, is to grow and another is to escape, right? And the function that I'd like to focus on is uh, our tendency to romanticize partners that aren't at all good for us, right? But Still, you know, there's some quality in them that keeps us bound to holding on to someone that, you know, for all intents and purposes, continues to hurt us. Which, you know, in today's world, I'd be willing to bet that this happens more often than we'd care to admit. And the reason this is such a a compelling thing for me is that I've been one of these people before. You know, like in my youth, you know, I, I, I found myself in relationship after relationship with partners that I absolutely loved, despite how terrible they treated me. And in retrospect, it, it, it seemed that I fell into this naive belief that I could save what appeared to be a wounded soul while, you know, at the same time, um, unconsciously appearing to be a wounded soul myself. Of course, at the time, you know, all of this appears much more innocent. You know, I mean, we really do believe to some degree that it is our responsibility to heal others as a way to validate our own emotional pain. Of course, you know, it isn't obvious that this is the case because, you know, there are various ways in which we embody and express our own emotional baggage. You know, empaths tend to internalize their struggles and kind of appear to be a bit more proficient in keeping their traumas under wraps. I mean, from a young age, you know, we develop certain ways of coping with our feelings through things like, you know, art, literature, music, and, uh, you know, of course, the philanthropy of human interaction, right? Like, we more or less take on the, the archetype of what Carl Jung considers the wounded healer. You know, where our traumas become our, our biggest teaching for ourselves and, you know, by default become our, you know, moral obligation to assist the world in helping others through similar situations. But the ways in which, you know, we approach healing others the right way will kind of largely depend on how we approach healing ourselves first. But this isn't, this isn't you know, the route that we typically take in the beginning, you know. Like, it, instead, we fall into this sort of unconscious behavior of trying to heal others as a way to heal ourselves. And I'd like to be clear here um, that, you know, helping others as a way to heal the internal pain that we feel is definitely an innocent motive, but it's a re- an irresponsible one, to be honest. You know, because the issue with our impulse to heal someone else is thinking that it may actually work with people that have no impulse to get better. 
And so if we leave our inward salvation up to someone else, you know, we never fully feel whole. And ultimately, you know, it's a, it's a responsibility that we should never place onto someone else to resolve. Because even if we were able to heal someone else, you know, unless we are doing the work in healing ourselves first, you know, their healing will do very little to stop the bleeding of your own heart. I mean, more than anything, it becomes a distraction, sort of preventing us from our own deep spiritual inquiry. And when you're young, you know, this distraction seems to be really the point. Because what we are really doing is attempting to heal them so that we can leave the responsibility on them to heal us, right? And of course, this isn't at all the, the most appropriate way to approach our own healing. I mean, more than anything, what this tells us is that we have no idea how to go about making the pain go away or that we're simply just too afraid to do it ourselves. I mean, I get it, you know, like taking accountability for our own pain is difficult, you know, especially when we have no idea where to start. I mean, if you're an adult, you know, you've, you've probably gathered that no matter how much emotional turmoil you heal, it seems that as long as we're alive, like even more of it will take its place. In essence, you know, as long as we're breathing, you know, as long as we're moving through life in this karmic dance, you know, the, the, the sort of need for healing seems like it'll just never end. It seems like the act of being alive in this sort of three-dimensional sphere of cause and effect is kind of similar to gravity in that, you know, no matter how high we jump, gravity always finds a way to pull us back down again. I mean, not to mention, you know, living amongst a culture just so hardwired to self-destruct, it, it, it seems that we're always being subject to circumstances that worked you know, indirect contradiction to the love that we'd like to feel in life. And of course, the goal isn't to swim against the current of life, but, you know, the to kind of just develop healthy ways of flowing with it, right? And a part of this journey in discovering the flow is, is you know, is to monitor the ways in which we flow in relationships. I mean, after all, relationships are one of the most powerful journeys that we can embark on to, to learn more about ourselves. You know, relationships can uncover our traumas in a way that no other experience can. And, and of course, you know, when our partners become our mirrors, this becomes really all too obvious. And of course, when you're young, it's not as obvious how integral of a role our traumas play in our search for romantic love, you know? Like, at first, it, it seems kind of innocent, right? Like, we gravitate towards those that we sense uh, commonality with or, or familiarity with. And that sense of familiarity doesn't always point to a sense of comfort that's healthy. I mean, more often than not, you know, that, that sense of... Uh, kindred commonality tends to, to point towards an unhealthy quality in us that we often see in someone else. I mean, in my case, you know, I'd always felt this, I'd always felt this connection to partners that were similar in temperament to that of my father, which, you know, um, had the capacity to be more volatile and unpredictable and kind of just deeply wounded as a result of their past. Of course, you know, when you're young, that, that sense of familiarity kind of translates to a sense of comfort, even if that comfort isn't at all healthy. You know, that sense of compassion that we felt towards each other felt like love. And perhaps in, in some sense it was, but, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't an ultimate all-encompassing love. You know, it was a love kind of limited to certain dimensions, you know, like certain conditions that, that just needed to be met in order for us to just really enjoy being together. And, you know, seldom were those conditions um, sustainable enough to remain consistent. You know, like when you're living with trauma... Love can often feel like you're, you're chasing a high that will inevitably lead to a crash once you've obtained it. It's not as obvious in those moments that love should feel, you know, a little bit more balanced, right? It should feel more peaceful and consistent. And that's because we, we, we don't yet have the emotional awareness to know that 
we're seeking love for all the wrong reasons, right? I mean, in my case, you know, I, I found myself trying to escape the clutches of my own pain through relationships with women that were battling with the same sort of emotional pain that I'd felt. I mean, not only that, but, you know, their pain held sort of like a stark resemblance to that of the pain that my father felt about life and sort of acted out that pain in much the same way that he did, you know, like through anger and uh, emotional and, and physical abuse. You know, it's not immediately obvious that, you know, what we're looking for is a way to escape. You see, what happens when you enter into an unhealthy relationship with someone, you know, just as emotionally traumatized as you is that you both may be looking for the same thing, but, you know, it certainly isn't true love. You know, inevitably you end up in a relationship with your trauma because, you know, it, it isn't that I was looking for the care and love that I wish I had gotten from my father, you know. Instead, what I was seeking was this, this sense of kind of familiar disorientation that I had felt with my father because it's what, I, it's what I knew, right? It's what felt normal to me. And because it felt normal, you know, I... I allowed toxic partners to mistreat me in the same way that my father had as a child. Because when you're faced with constant abuse as a child, you know, like we, we lack the ability to differentiate our feelings from that of our caretaker's feelings. You know, their feelings are essentially our feelings. And of course, as an adult, you know, this, this uh, process of individuation typically teaches us that we are our own human being apart from anyone else. So when we're amongst someone with a, a toxic disposition, you know, we can often identify their instability as theirs and, you know, not allow ourselves to be affected by it. You know, we know that we have a choice as to whether or not to take it personally. And as mature adults, you know, we often know not to. Though, you know, uh, when you're a child, you know, because this process of individuation hasn't yet developed, they have little choice but to identify their caretaker's feelings as their own. And because children rely just so heavily on the emotions of their parents, you know, they, they do often mistake their caretaker's pain as their own. And so children can find themselves kind of feeling guilt and shame when they, you know, they're just being constantly subjected to the pain of their parents. You know, like we, we turn to them for security and survival. And, and when they can't provide this, you know, we unconsciously feel as though it's because of something that we're doing wrong. And as we grow up, you know, this can become a, a vicious cycle of us kind of attempting to gain their approval and acceptance. But you know, never really receiving it, at least, you know, not without taking an emotional beating in the process, right? And if you're someone that's experienced the pain of this process, then you know, you know, how, you know how deeply this affects your self-esteem as you get older. And as a result, you likely deal with feelings of uh, low self-worth and insecurity and, you know, perhaps even codependency, right? And we often find that codependency comes as a result of our parents never quite teaching us how to live without their sort of constant need for attention, I mean, in many ways, you know, they rely on us to absorb the blow of their own trauma. I mean, it's, 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 it's not uncommon for children growing up with unstable parents to feel just completely smothered by them to the extent that they, you know, they prevent you from growing in life. You know, like many parents, they even prevent their children from going to college or starting their own careers, you know, like, like going to public schools. And, you know, some even pull children out of school altogether, right? Because your, your sole purpose in the eyes of toxic parents is to cater to their instability. You know, it's almost as if to say, you know, if if they couldn't have a stable upbringing, right? If they couldn't go to college, you know, like if if they couldn't grow up living a healthy and normal life or a healthy and normal childhood, then neither can you. And of course, you know, it isn't as obvious to us in those moments that what they are dealing with is a just a profound fear that you may abandon them one day. And so they keep you sort of bound to their trauma by subjecting you to the, the same emotional pain that they feel. And because of this, you know, codependency is born. 
And these sort of uh, you know unhealthy attachment styles can be birthed from you know our parents abandoning us, but also by our parents smothering us as well, right? I mean, that's why you know it's so important for parents to find a, a balance between autonomy and dependence when it comes to raising children. I mean, in my case, you know, it it was unfortunately the latter. You know, my father, you know, he had a deep fear of being alone or of just being abandoned. And as a way to keep me bound to this emotional trauma, you know, like he used fear and verbal abuse to, to keep me dependent on him. And as a result, you know, my self-esteem and sense of self-worth took a beating that would take me most of my life to try and heal from. See, what happens when you're, you're faced with constant criticism and emotional abuse is that at some point, you know, we begin to normalize it in our relationships with others when we're faced with it. You know, like I, I believe that most people will find themselves in a relationship with a toxic partner at some point in their lives. And if you were raised by parents that taught you the true meaning of love, you know, it, it quickly becomes obvious to you that you should distance yourself from these kind of people, right? Like you spend little time tolerating any type of abuse because you recognize it as abnormal behavior. Though, you know, if you were raised by toxic parents, you may not identify emotional abusive partners as toxic. You know, instead, you may, you know, identify emotional abuse as normal. At the very least, if not normal, then you may see it as familiar, right? I mean, quickly, you may begin accepting the same abuse you received, you know, from your partner in the same way that you were accepting abuse from your parents. And if we don't heal, you know, this trauma, you know, we may find ourselves repeating the same vicious cycle with those that we claim to love. I mean, as was in my case, you know, like I found myself in relationships with partners that were equally as toxic, you know, like that relied on me to reconcile their pain, right? That relied on me to stop the bleeding of their own hearts. And in an effort to ensure that I never left their side, you know, they used emotional and verbal abuse to keep me bound to them. And often, you know, if we're already dealing with feelings of low self-esteem and self-worth, you know, we may believe that we don't deserve anything better. You know, in some unconscious way, you know, we sometimes believe that it's what we deserve for not being able to heal, you know, the pain of our parents. And perhaps, you know, in some unconscious way, you know, we attempt to, to heal that pain by seeking the same validation and acceptance from our partners that we weren't never able to receive from our parents. And this, you know, like, this is a very difficult pattern to break free from when it begins with a, a romantic partner. You know, we find ourselves in this pattern of seeking their approval and just receiving emotional abuse instead. You know, we think to ourselves, you know, if only I can make this person happy, you know, like if only they accepted me, can I truly be happy? And it's not as obvious in these relationships that, you know, what we're seeking is the approval that our parents never gave us, right? What we're seeking is that sense of self-worth that, you know, we feel was taken from us. There are several issues with this type of thinking because, as commendable as it may be to try and save someone else, you know, you'll find yourself breaking your own heart as a result. You know, like in this process, like you'll end up losing everything about you that makes you truly special. And eventually, you know, like everything that makes you you will just disappear. And of course, you know, once we, you know, enter into the spiritual domain, you know, like when, what we once kind of considered a compassionate impulse to help someone else heal, you know, we realize you know, transforms into a type of enabling behavior where we, you know, in many ways just push them farther away from the healing that they just so desperately need for themselves. Because it's true, you know, like it, it certainly appears that they need to pursue some level of healing, but we realize at a certain point that it, it most certainly isn't going to be because of you. And this effort we place into thinking that it will, you know, it, it simply 
just deprives them of the healing that they should be seeking for themselves, right? I mean, not to mention, you know, depriving ourselves of healing by placing the responsibility on them to sort of assuage the pain that we feel. Because one thing that we realize on our path is that, you know, healing isn't as simple as being the one to kind of place bandages over the wounds of others, right? I mean, after a while, you know, we realize that all bandages do is provide, you know, temporary relief to pain that can only be healed by going to the, you know, the core of their trauma. And they're the only ones that can do this. And it's a journey, right? It's a journey that may take someone a lifetime of work to fully understand the implications of their own behavior. And one thing that happens when we intervene with this natural, you know, process of discovery for someone else is we deprive them of their ability to heal on their own. I mean, it may sound a bit harsh, but, you know, who are we to take it upon ourselves to do someone else's work, right? Perhaps the reason many of us take on this sort of arduous task of attempting to heal someone else is because we feel that it may lead to us healing as well, right? Which, of course, you know, is, is also an unconscious means of escape where we're placing the burden of responsibility on someone else to help ease the trauma of our own hearts. And this is the game that toxic relationships tend to play, you know? Like, instead of truly appreciating the beauty of someone else, like, we enter into a codependent dance where we are sort of unconsciously seeking to extract a love from someone that we can't give ourselves. And if we are, you know, attempting to extract this love from someone who is emotionally unavailable, you know, someone who does not have the, the, the capacity to validate our experiences in life, then, you know, we quickly just find out that we aren't actually getting what we need. I mean, more than anything, you know, we go in expecting love and we end up losing more of ourselves instead. You see, when you spend time with any human being, whether romantically or in a platonic way, you know, there's, there's like an exchange of energy that is, is being made between two people. You know, like when you converse with a friend that cares about your well-being, like you can pour your heart out to them. And in response, you know, they can provide an equal exchange of energy by reciprocating the communication with loving words that sort of validate your feelings. And as a result, you know, like you feel seen, right? Like you feel heard. It's as, if, it's as if they're saying to you, you know, like, I see you, right? You exist and I understand. You know, there, there's, there's nothing more, pro, more powerful and validating than someone saying, like, I understand, right? In those moments, it's as if they're saying, in this enormous world of eight, seven or eight billion people, I see you and you exist to me. You know, there's nothing more powerful than, than feeling seen, you know, not just in a physical way, but in an emotional and spiritual way. You know, like the idea of feeling seen can also kind of also be interpreted as another way to define compassion, right? Because compassion literally means to suffer with, you know, in a world that just seems riddled with, you know, unforeseen circumstances and often sort of heart-wrenching moments of emotional turmoil, you know, someone can just emerge from the wreckage of your broken heart and just sit with you and just say, I understand because I felt the same pain that you've experienced before, right? And as beautiful as this can feel from someone you love, emotionally unavailable or toxic partners don't have the ability to sympathize with your pain in this way, at least not in a healthy way, you know, like not in a way that communicates that they care. I mean, more often the way that they relate to your pain is just by causing you more of the pain that they themselves feel. Because for them, you know, it's certainly something that they feel, but it it isn't normally something that they can completely absorb on their own. I mean, more often than not, you know, because the force of that pain is much too much to bear, you know, they rely on you to absorb the pain of it for them. 
right? So my point is this, okay? The reciprocal exchange of energy between two healthy people, it sort of like circulates, right? Like when you offer your heart, they assimilate those feelings by offering a like offering you a piece of theirs. And in moments where you've forgotten how to access the love within your own heart, you know, sometimes a friend can remind you of that love by helping remind you of how beautiful of a person you really are. So in a sense, you know, you either leave feeling better, you know, you either leave feeling more full, and more than anything, you know, you, you never leave feeling like someone took something away from you. And this, you know, this is how people typically feel when attempting to love a toxic partner. You know, because of their inability to love themselves, you know, they're, they're never able to reciprocate feelings of understanding and love. So you always feel like you're losing a piece of yourself in the midst of trying to reconcile your issues with them. And if you're someone that struggles with issues of self-esteem, you know, this can pull you deeper into your own despair, right? And in the midst of despair, you know, we often turn to a series of trauma responses that just do very little to permanently heal the desolation that we feel. You know, like when things got to this point with my partners, I would result in escaping within the same traumatic behaviors that got me through my childhood. You know, like as a child, you know, instead of facing the emotional pain that I felt in the moment, I would drift off into imagination, just creating beautiful worlds in my mind that were, you know, diametrically opposite from the world that I was currently in. You know, like I'd listen to music and uh, I'd imagine that I was a, a famous musician just playing sold out shows in arenas full of people that, you know, admire me for my art. You know, like I, uh, I'd play with toys and engage in these sort of like performative acts of being a, a stable man with a beautiful wife and a house filled with bright and intelligent children. And of course, you know, in the moment, all of this seemed very innocent. But, you know, what we realize when we become old enough to understand this type of behavior is that we begin to accept it as a trauma response, right? Like people that undergo enormous amounts of trauma as children tend to engage in these types of things as a way to disassociate from a moment that's just far too complex for them to understand in a healthy way. Of course, you know, one can say that imagining in this way is a normal behavior that children tend to practice. You know, maybe in some ways it's true, you know, like after all, you know, children do sometimes envision being a doctor only to become one as an adult. But, you know, the deciding factor in determining whether it's a healthy behavior seems to largely depend on the environment in which this imagination operates. You know, like if imagination naturally unravels from a place of safety, then these, you know, healthy dreams can manifest in, in an organic way. But if this imagination sort of unravels from a place of fear and trauma, then this sense of imagination just becomes a coping mechanism for pain, right? And this is the type of imagination that we, we need to be careful with because if we aren't aware of why we disassociate in moments of trauma, then we will bring this mechanism of escape into our adult years where it can just wreak havoc on our relationships. See, in moments where we need to be present to feel and address the pain that we feel, uh, we end up escaping from the blow of this feeling by doing things like romanticizing partners that are clearly hurting us. I mean, this certainly was the case with me. Like when you're an empathic person, you know, you've likely grown up with a frame of thinking that feels extremely sensitive and sympathetic towards the pain of others. And this includes toxic people. And in an effort to, you know, try and protect yourself from the pain that these people inflict on our spirits, you know, we often focus on what we would consider to be the parts that we love most about them, you know, while at the same time, you know, completely ignoring the parts of them that perpetually hurt us. And in the moment, you know, it may seem like we're being reasonable optimists just looking on the bright side of things. 
and trying to find the good in every situation, but, you know, completely ignoring the parts of them that are destroying us. Because this type of behavior is no different than the type of behavior that we engage in when we were, you know, little children trying to escape from the clutches of uh, emotional abuse. You know, like instead of creating beautiful worlds in our minds, you know, we create a partner that is more loving, right? More caring and emotionally stable than the partner that we're currently with. And what we do to, to validate this imaginary world is we latch on to any and all moments that we've had with our partners where they behaved in that way. I mean, no matter how fleeting those moments would be, you know, those fleeting moments is all we typically need in order to trick ourselves into believing that, you know, like this beautiful person is in there somewhere, right? They're in there somewhere. And if we work hard enough, you know, like if we're patient enough, if we're strong enough, we alone can bring that person back into the present, right? And this, my friends, you know, it's an impossible task, because the determining factor in whether someone is a good person, you know, isn't based on fleeting moments of loving behavior. You know, it's based on consistency and, and compassion and an understanding of what it means to be a human being. You know, trying to determine whether someone is a loving person solely based on linear moments of loving behavior isn't at all it means to be human. I mean, let's be honest, you know, life isn't designed that way. You know, there isn't one human being moving through life just completely happy and loving all the time. You know, it, it would be more accurate to, to gauge whether someone is a good person by, you know, like the level of authenticity they display and how they sort of orient themselves around life's most beautiful and also challenging moments. Because this is real life, right? You know, like to perceive the way someone moves through life, you know, by, by paying attention to how they interact with others, uh, how they treat others, you know, paying attention to how they, they handle stress and, and react in situations that, you know, challenge us as human beings. And most importantly, you know, paying attention to how they treat themselves. You know, we can learn a lot about someone by paying attention to how they think of the world around them. You know, like, are they typically negative? Uh, are they pessimistic? Um, do they disrespect others? And, and do you always feel like the most precious commodity that you have, which is your energy, by the way, right? Do you always feel like this energy is being siphoned by this person? Right? Like, do you find yourself just questioning your own sanity when, you know, they love you one minute and hate you the next? You know, I, I think traditionally we would consider these, these types energy vampires, right? And uh, incidentally, you know, these types of individuals seem to, you know, gravitate towards more empathetic types because, um, you know, empaths are, are usually overly considerate of others that they pretty much just practically give their energy away to those that they feel could benefit from it, right? And energy vampires, you know, they, they revel in the feeling of taking it. And so it often kind of becomes this deeply unhealthy dance where, you know, the empath feels that they're doing something commendable, yet realizing eventually that, you know, it's being done at the cost of their own soul. And of course, you know, there, there's nothing wrong with wanting to help someone, but, you know, the issue with giving your power away to toxic individuals is that they almost never progress or get better. I mean, had they actually spent time working on themselves, you know, they, they'd realize that they don't need anything from anyone, right? Because self-love is, uh, you know, it's a, it's a radically sustainable force that sort of expands in all directions. You know, like when we love ourselves in a healthy way, we find that we have an abundance of love to give others, you know, regardless of whether or not it's given to us, right? And this is typically the issue with empaths and energy vampires or, you know, I guess I should say codependence and narcissists, we can put it that way, right? They both seem to lack a sense of self-love. 
And because of this, you know, they rely on others to provide it. And it's interesting because, you know, they're, they're both essentially longing for the same thing. They're just going about it in a different way. You know, like the empath, more than anything, wants to fix the toxic partner because, you know, the, the validation an empath feels over completing this task is, is, is similar validation to that of what they imagine they would feel had they actually received that validation from fixing maybe their toxic parent. I mean, incidentally, the, the need to fix can be seen as a narcissistic quality as well. You know, like they end up trying to fix someone else as a way to validate their own need to feel better. You know, they may think of this need to, to fix as a, a sort of compassionate gesture of kindness, but, you know, there's nothing compassionate about doing someone else's work for them, right? And assuming that, you know, you're going to be the one to transform their toxic behavior. And of course, you know, I wouldn't say that empaths fall into the category of being narcissists because, you know, they tend to have a quality of self-awareness that narcissists seem to lack. But I would say that, you know, empaths can lack a sense of self-love and so develop, you know, certain strategies to try and cultivate that self-love through attempting to heal others, right? It's an, I mean, it's an innocent desire for sure, you know, yet, you know, the empath tends to help at the cost of their own happiness, you know, which, it, you know, isn't at all a compassionate act towards oneself, you know, empaths, you know, tend to be people pleasers. And this in and of itself is no different than trying to, you know, calm a toxic parent from losing their shit on you. And so we see this sort of interesting symbiosis between an empath and a narcissist because, you know, the narcissist soaks this shit up, you know, and most certainly, you know, has little plan to change. And since toxic partners tend to also suffer from issues of self-worth, you know, like instead of attempting to help others just as an empath does, they simply take from others willing to give them the attention that they, you know, so desperately need in order to feel good about themselves. I mean, you know, in the end, you know, the role of an empath and the role of a narcissist are, are both governed by trauma responses, right? Trauma responses that go really far back into their childhood, you know, and each of these people, you know, have their own unique ways of coping with their own pain while in toxic relationships. I mean, as was in my case, you know, like I, I found myself so afraid of rejection and so afraid of being alone that you know, I fabricated an image of my toxic partner that wasn't at all based in reality. And that image that I, that I had of them in my mind was just so far removed from who they actually were that I essentially created a version of them that didn't even exist in real life, right? Like after a while, you know, we, we dive so far into a type of denial that eventually we don't even know who we are in that dream. And little by little, you know, we witness everything that we used to love about ourselves just disappear, you know, like it disappears in, in our unwillingness to acknowledge that we are being destroyed by this person. And this, you know, like, like this is why it's, it's so important to ground ourselves in reality when it comes to toxic people. You know, as difficult as it may be to, to accept that we are being used, you know, that we're being hurt, you know, that we're essentially being emotionally abused, you know, as difficult as it may be to accept that. You know, we have to accept it if we're ever to free ourselves from the, the clutches of these people, you know? Like, a, a part of healing from codependency is acknowledging that whatever happened to you as a child was not your fault. And whatever pain or trauma that your parent had been going through at that time was not your responsibility to fix. I mean, as visceral of a feeling it may be to feel as though, you know, you're responsible for helping them, you know, it's... It's important to understand that you have a profound opportunity to transform your family's trauma by understanding why, you know, they were in pain to begin with, because it didn't start with you, likely. 
you know, it certainly didn't start with them, you know, because generational trauma is something that's, you know, it's passed on and, uh, you know, it'll continue to wreak havoc on the lives of children until, you know, we do the work in understanding why it's there. And the only way to understand, you know, is if um, we develop enough courage to kind of just look deeply into the depths of where that trauma resides and, you know, offer it love and offer it compassion and understanding. Now, you know, many people will attempt to do this by, you know, venturing deep into the past. And while you may be able to find some answers there, you know, I, I wouldn't say that true healing is something that you will find in that realm. You know, as an initial starting point, you know, perhaps maybe the past can point us in the direction of where these, you know, unconscious patterns began. But, you know, unless you have like a, a time machine that can take you years into the past, you know, we, we find that we can do very little to change the trajectory of situations that have already happened. And of course, you know, many people tend to believe that they can go into the past and correct the wrongs of their parents and uh, their abusers. I mean, eventually, you know, we find that we can't. And this can lead to a lot of frustration because, you know, usually we believe that our salvation lies in somehow being able to change situations that have already happened. Uh, but we can't do that, right? And I wonder why uh, this is. Well, I think because the past is, you know, like what Osho says, it's just a graveyard. And if you dwell there long enough, you know, like you could lose yourself in just the same way that you lose yourself in a toxic relationship. Because, you know, to live in a past that's no longer here really is to live a non-existential life. You know, eventually you'll discover that you're not really living at all, you know. You'll become a ghost in the same way that your memories become a ghost when you try and, you know, grasp them in the moment. So, you know, the alternative that I can recommend, you know, if you're someone that's looking to heal the past, is by healing that past by living fully in the present. You know, and th this may sound counterintuitive at first, you know, like you may think, well, you know, if the trauma happened in the past, wouldn't healing the past be the best place to start? Well, yes, but, you know, we have to approach this a certain way, right? So listen, like you are the past, right? Everything that makes you who you are is a combination of past experiences just being perpetuated in this moment by every thought and uh, every thought and belief that make you feel that you are who you imagine yourself to be. And as much as Eastern spirituality teaches us to resolve ourselves of this narrative, you know, we can also use it to our advantage, right? By acknowledging that our past is just a story. You know, that's all it is. Even if it's a deeply intimate and personal story, you know, the power that this story has is limited by the belief that you place into it. And, you know, just as any insignificant thing that enters into our field on any given day that we easily forget, you know, we can choose to let it go in just the same way that, you know, we let go of someone accidentally bumping into us while walking through a busy crowd. I mean, it's really no different because every experience we go through in life, whether it's traumatic or, you know, super random, it all registers to the same place, right? And that's our mind. You know, the only difference between a traumatic memory and an insignificant event is how much we ourselves identify with it. I mean, you'd be surprised at how many people would brush off a negative comment from a stranger. Well, there are some people that just simply can't forget it. And the difference is only that of just one belief, you know, like one simple thought that we can either remember or just let go. You know, like you know, as humans, you know, we, we think an average of about 60 to 80,000 thoughts a day. And many of these thoughts we don't even remember, you know, like, but out of the 80,000 thoughts we think, you know, somehow we convince ourselves that we can't let go of one of those thoughts 
just because how of how they made us feel, right? I mean, it really is interesting when you look at it from this perspective because then you realize how much of our energy we're spending on our past. You know, not even just the energy we're spending on the past, but it's, you know, it's, it seems scientifically proven that even when we think about traumatic experiences, we don't even remember them clearly, right? And we and, and, and when we can't remember them clearly, you know, what we result to is pretty much just creating stories in our minds that may actually be just so far removed from how they were actually experienced. And all this does, you know, is, is create fear and confusion. I and mean, we see that sometimes in people, right? So my point is this, you know, the best way to, to heal your past is by living fully in the present, right? And, and from a neurobiological perspective, it makes sense because in order for the brain to make room for new experiences, you know, it, it has to let go of the past, so if we're doing the work and, and engaging with the moment, you know, then everything we experience will, will take precedence over distant memory. You know, many people don't believe this because they're, they're too busy you know, living in the past. But you know, if you remain committed to your practice in this moment, you'll find that a new part of you will eventually emerge, right? And you know, it does take time, yes, but you know, if you remain committed to you know, living your life now, and eventually you'll you know you'll get to a place where you realize that everything is okay because you know the the spirit wants to feel happiness you know like happiness is its state of of homeostasis and so it will always work to to reestablish that quality of being even when we ourselves don't feel it right like it, it'll gather experiences from your present moment to take the place of the pain that you feel but we have to ground ourselves in the moment in order for that process to really unfold correctly because you know, we lose focus of the moment when we're sort of engulfed in the process of resisting pain. You know, it takes more effort to resist pain than it does to feel it. You know, like when we allow pain to exist, we allow every other aspect of life to exist as well. And so we develop a, a, a symbiotic relationship between pain and life where they can both exist simultaneously. And the result is that we, we give ourselves kind of permission to continue living in the moment and as a result, you know, we, we show our pain so many things about life that are beautiful and loving in this moment. You know, it's like, it's like freeing an abused animal that's, that's lived its entire life in captivity, you know, like in a room with no sun and it's, it's never been outside. And then allowing them to be outside for the first time, you know, like it, it feels it's the air against its skin, you know, the, the, the smell of the flowers and you know, suddenly it begins to realize how beautiful life is outside of its cage. You know, we, we, have, to, we have to bring our pain into the moment to kind of help it realize that, that there's nothing to be afraid of. You know, like too often, like we, we linger on the surfaces of a broken heart or, you know, sort of dance within the flames of the anger that we feel over tragedies that we've experienced. You know, like too often our thoughts and projections of a past kind of take the place of situations like we can no longer even remember correctly. You know, like we can struggle for years with the pain that we feel. Though, you know, when we allow ourselves to kind of take a moment, like even a second, to just explore the, the substratum of these feelings, you know, we, we can find something much more fundamental to the human heart than, uh, you know, our thoughts and stories about what we feel. You know, like what we often carry with us are memories of situations we may never fully understand. And, um, you know, despite this, you know, we, we still try desperately to change the way we feel about them I mean, only to find out, you know, that we can't. And the truth is, you know, like healing 
isn't so much about understanding the specifics. You know, it has more to do with the, the, the fundamental energy hidden beneath the feelings that we feel. You know, like when we develop enough courage to look deep enough, you know, we find either like a, a simple feeling of love or like a, a simple fear requiring a, a type of loving attention. It's a simple energy that ego often has trouble understanding. And that's really for the simple fact that it isn't meant to be understood with the mind. You know, it's meant to be felt with the heart. You know, because uh, a mistake that we often make in the realm of healing is, is thinking that we need to understand something to heal it. And, um, you know, perhaps it's this effort to understand that contributes to more of the, the same confusion that we feel, you know, because feeling it doesn't necessarily mean to understand it in the way that we think we do, you know, like we can understand many things without healing what ails us, you know, like feeling it is, is just that, right? It's, it's feeling, you know, like feeling means to allow your pain to coexist with you now, you know, in this moment, you know, like in this life and to, you know, fiercely live with it in a way that's just so present that eventually the pain realizes that it's okay to not hurt anymore because, you know, it's, it's no longer trapped in the memory of that experience. You know, it's no longer trapped in, in the confines of your mind. You know, it's instead, you know, brought into this moment where it can, you know, like feel the breeze against its skin, you know, like the, the sunlight against its face and, um, you know, like the, the gentle laughter of the joy that someone feels. You know, like when we grant ourselves permission to kind of bring our pain outside of the shadows that we've kept it hidden in, then we allow it to experience the same sunlight that you experience, right? And the same beauty that you experience, you know, like in the light of like our awareness, you know, we realize that our shadows aren't shadows at all. You know, it's, it, they're just like little wounded children just experiencing life for the first time. You know, one thing that's really important to understand is that, you know, the body is programmed to sustain love as its center, and if we bring our pain outside of the shadows and into the body, then life will sort of begin this process of transforming that pain into love. And in terms of, you know, romantic relationships, you know, when we can facilitate this emotional healing for ourselves, you know, we'll, we'll naturally attract a partner that can identify that sort of flickering light of hope inside of your heart and love you in the same way that you love yourself, right? Because light attracts light. And love attracts love. I mean, look, you know, we, we all have pain that we carry with us, right? And we may live our entire lives with some level of this trauma. But the most important thing that we can do is use these experiences as a teaching to help us grow in some of the most beautiful ways. You know, our past can help us learn how important it is to love ourselves, you know, by giving us the ability to witness how tragic it is when someone loses sight of the love in their heart. You know, like eventually, you know, when we practice acceptance over a past that we had no control over, then we can accept a beautiful present just filled with compassion and love for ourselves and of others. You know, and, and eventually, you know, when you meet someone, they'll make you feel like you're home because you yourself are already there. And you yourself know what home should feel like. Namaste, friends. <laughs>